Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. This is the Vice Guide to Right Now, your inside look into the best of vice. It's Monday, January 14th. I'm Sophie Casas. Today we're talking about Lifetime's new documentary series, Surviving R. Kelly. In the series, survivors from R. Kelly's inner circle come forward with stories and allegations about his sexual, mental, and physical abuse. I was a typical teenager. I was at Aventura Mall with some girlfriends. And uh, I see someone, a really tall guy, wearing sunglasses. So I said to my friend, Oh, I think that's R. Kelly. R. Kelly is often celebrated as one of the greatest R&B singers of all time. But his career has been riddled with rumors of abuse and predatory behavior. But despite the fact that a number of people have come forward with allegations and evidence, none of these accusations have seemingly had repercussions on his career. Now, in Lifetime's new documentary series, Surviving R. Kelly, women raise their voices to tell the full story of his abuse. There's a difference between R. Kelly and Robert. R. Kelly is this fun, laughing, loving guy. But Robert is the devil. Is the devil. The series includes over 50 interviews, including Me Too founder Tarana Burke, musicians John Legend and Sparkle, talk show host and former DJ Wendy Williams, ex-wife Andrea Kelly, ex-girlfriend Kitty Jones, brothers Carrie and Bruce Kelly, and many others. The rumors have been widespread for years, but the history has been largely ignored by mainstream media, basically until now. So today, we have a roundtable of vice writers and editors dissecting this new series. Here's Noisy's Kristen Corey, Broadley's Danny Quatang-Clark, and Vice's Janae Price and Taylor Hosking. Hey, I'm Kristen Corey, and I am a staff writer at Noisy. Hey, I'm Danielle Quatang-Clark, and I'm the senior culture editor at Broadly. Hi, I'm Janae Price, and I'm an editorial assistant at Vice.com. And I'm Taylor Hosking. I'm a staff writer at Vice.com. So we are here in the studio to talk about the Lifetime documentary, Surviving R. Kelly. I thought it would be a good idea to get an all-star cast of Black women who work at Vice just to talk about this, just because I feel like people have been talking about R. Kelly for ages. And at this point, we just need to talk about how we are to move forward from now on. Mm -hmm. You know, this is not surprising. These allegations have been out since 1994. And it's kind of been like a weird stain on the Black community. It's been something that's been talked about, but people haven't really been taking it serious. And I feel like I personally can remember my first moment of when I was like, holy shit, like this is 
not just like a Dave Chappelle skit, like this is real. I was just kind of curious what were some of your moments where it kind of like clicked for you? I would say that specifically in music, I wouldn't even say the black community. I would just say like the music community in general has a long, as most of us know, history of harboring people with predatory behavior. And it really, if we like pull the magnifying glass out, it's a bigger conversation about like accountability and artistry and how those two work together or against each other. If you look back, there's literally legal documents of like James Brown and other people in history who had alleged abusive behavior. And a lot of times it was overlooked for the art. So being born in 87, I can't really remember the first time I heard and believed these R. Kelly stories, but it probably was the 90s and I probably initially believed it because, again, there's this history of essentially, you know, women not being believed, delayed disclosure, this sort of like going up against a monster of a man. And I've kind of always been trained to believe women. And so it's been a while for me since I've been hearing this. And in ways, it doesn't surprise me. When I was younger, you know, you hear all about these things. I heard about Aaliyah. My family were huge Aaliyah fans. And you hear about her actually being 15 when they're married. And then, you know, the tapes that came out with him. And you're like, things aren't right, shady, but his music is still fantastic. So you just kind of ignored it. And then a little later on in life, my sister actually told me about how she was at our local mall back home. And R. Kelly was actually there with like all of his people. And he started trying to talk to my sister. And at the time, I think she was about 16 years old. And luckily, her mother intervened and was like, nah, like get away from my daughter because her mother had already heard about everything that was going on. But that was kind of the moment where I was like, this isn't just a joke. This isn't just hearsay. This like personally is something that happened in my family and it's like this guy is not good yeah I think my first time hearing about it was during the trial about the um, sex tapes where he allegedly peed on a young girl and at the time I was like okay that's something that's going on on the news but it wasn't really a moment in my life where I felt like I needed to be talking to the DJ if his music was playing or something like that. Um, And the Boondocks episode that came out soon after was hilarious. And I think people who came down on both sides of that issue were able to watch it. And, you know, everybody loves the Boondocks. So, you know, Huey's upset and he's outraged, but it's still, there's a layer of seriousness under it, but it's also kind of this, what are you going to do, black people? Um, and I think that attitude kind of like encapsulated what that time period was like for me. And then once the BuzzFeed article came out where people were starting to talk about him as someone who was holding women against their will in a sex cult and hearing stories of family members discussing wanting their child back and not being able to talk to their child and seeming really broken up about it and how desperate those situations were that was when it became like a really alarming emotional situation yeah you touched on a good point is just that in pop culture 
there was the Dave Chappelle skit, there was the Boondocks episode, but there, like you said, like there was like a line of seriousness, but also like comical, which kind of made it hard, especially like um, if you're in middle school or elementary school, those were brought to the cafeteria and were turned into jokes. You know what I mean? So it was kind of a thing of like, I'm not really sure how I'm supposed to take it, especially if the adults around you are not really taking it seriously also so it was kind of a thing of like if people were to be taking this serious they would be so maybe it is a joke you know what I mean like as a teenager you don't or as a preteen you don't really know but when I started studying journalism that's when you know I was like reading all these music journalism articles and there was this one I think Jessica Hopper did it she actually interviewed Jim Derogatis he's been reporting on this for like two, two decades at this point and they had all of the lawsuits and I was actually reading the like the cases and I'm like, this is not made up. Like these girls settled for millions of dollars. He has the millions to put up like this is freaking real. Like this is not this is not a joke. And then after that, what really solidified it for me, because even after that, I was still like listening to his music. And even as an intern, like I did something for Vibe, which was like he had a new album coming out. And I was like, oh, well, let me like go back and listen to all his stuff. So I gave him a bunch of streams I shouldn't have given him. Not that long ago when I was <laughs> doing this intern thing. But um, then a GQ interview came out and this was like a 10,000 word piece. I encourage everybody to read it because it was such a good piece because he literally let R. Kelly dig his own hole. Like he pressed him on questions about sexual assault, but it was more so of like a character analysis. And there was a part because this was like after he had written his autobiography. So there was a part in it where he was saying like, oh, you know, I watched my mom die in in my arms and all that kind of stuff. But in the autobiography, he said that he got to the hospital too late and he missed his mother's passing. So like literally the kicker was the writer fact checking whether or not that happened. And it was a completely different account than what R. Kelly had just told him. And I was like, my God, like, if you can lie about how your mom died, Mm. you're lying about everything else that you've said. Mm. And from that point on, I was like, man, there goes ignition. (laughs) There goes trapped in the closet. Like, Mm -hmm. I just, I can't do it because I literally, like, read that and I got goosebumps. In spring, I think, early summer, he came out with, like, this 15, 20-minute song called I Admit It. And I went back and I looked at the lyrics for a lot of his stuff. And he is just contradicting himself. Mm. You're not taking responsibility for anything you've done, but you're trying to package it in a way that's saying, like, I'm trying to take responsibility. Mm -hmm. You hear about all of these allegations and all of these things being brought forth about R. Kelly, but you kind of ignore them because his music's great. Everyone in our community is laughing and making jokes about it. And it's just like, if all of this stuff is happening and we're just ignoring it, like, how are we supposed to, as a community, move forward and make sure that we don't keep on supporting people like this? Danny and I went to the screening. This wasn't the first screening with the gun threat. They were brave enough to to hold another one, and um, we got to go and watch the first two hours. But in the first two hours, they repeated three times, three different people, about this notion that he was hiding in plain sight, right? So it's kind of the thing of, like, he's been having all these sexual songs that it seems like you're ready.
AJ nothing but a number, you know, where he's like literally lurking in the back of Aaliyah's cover. But it's also like, those are also old adages in the black community. Like, oh, you'll just say that. And it mm. not to say that it doesn't mean anything, but like you take it with a grain of salt of like, oh, AJ, nothing but a number. Or at the, at the end of the screening, a lot of people were referencing how, like having a creepy uncle or I know in me in particular, I can remember like moments when I started to feel I was still a child, but I started to feel grown because that's when your mom is like, oh, such and such is coming. Put on some clothes. But it's like. I'm nine and this is my uncle. Why do I have to put on the clothes? Like mm-hmm. I should be able to run around in my panties. You know what I mean? But that's like, that's because that's unknowingly you're perpetuating this kind of rape culture, whether it's in your communities, whether it's in your immediate families. But it's just like, how do you guys think that we dismantle that? Because it's hard to say, let's take down R. Kelly if we don't take it down in our immediate circles. I think like a large part of the solution is like this generation and social media and like, you know, the call out culture and accountability and really making sure that we are holding people accountable in a very public way for their actions. And just having these discussions in general, I think, are really helpful because when we all sort of like share our shared experiences and talk about that uncle or talk about that creepy family friend or whatever, I think it makes it easier to apply that in practical everyday life. I think before social media, we didn't have these conversations in such a public forum. And so I'm really hopeful, actually, about the next generation really holding men to task, honestly, Mm -hmm. because it's really like tied to masculinity and, you know, this idea of like sexuality being something that should be like tied to such a young age, especially for black women and how we develop. And it's almost like instead of telling women to cover up, like maybe men should start having these conversations about putting their dick away. You know what I mean? Like maybe it's, maybe that's what we need to be talking about. And I think that's what's happening. So yeah, I'm, I'm actually very, I'm very hopeful and I'm very like, and I'm really actually excited about this documentary because I think the conversation is going to be largely put on black men. Like, what are you doing? You know, Mm -hmm. um, what are you, you know, perpetuating when you tell your daughter certain things? What are you, you know, perpetuating when you tell your son certain things? You know, how to approach women, how to interact with women, consent. Um, I think a lot of these different subjects, the more we talk about it, I would hope the better it gets. We'll I also <laughs> feel pretty hopeful right now because I, for some reason, just decided to randomly turn on Destiny's Child this morning when I was coming <laughs> to work. Always a good job. That's and, fine. <laughs> Valid. Yeah. <laughs> Good choice on any other day except for today because Cater to You comes on. And the whole thing is an ode to giving up your life in service of a man. And I'm watching this video on my way to work because I'm like, actually, this was an absurd moment. (laughs) (laughs) The the video music, the one at the award show or the, oh um, God. The video of uh, the three of them giving men lap dances at an award show. And Magic Johnson was one of them and Michelle was dancing on him and she's so slim and small in this dress and he's obviously a basketball player and much older and he's sitting there in this like suit that's beige and it was just (laughs) (laughs) the image to me was just creepy uncle right there and sure Nelly okay he's cute but I mean he also has cases against him allegations against him also Mm -hmm. so yeah and 
that song and that performance would not work in 2018. Absolutely. And it was partly because of me listening to that song and the day that I knew I was going to be like thinking about this documentary that all of that clicked for something that maybe on another day I would have just let pass. But these things are what have made up the culture that you guys have been discussing. I mean, 2004 was a really different time than we're in right now. So I read Angela Davis's Woman, Race, and Class a couple of months ago, and there is a chapter that is titled The Myth of the Black Rapist. So it's basically her saying that, I mean, this this book is also published in 1981, So, but it was basically about the fact that the black rapist is purely political because because of the way slavery set up black women in the way that we protect our own. So it's like if we as black women were violated by our masters and if black men were crucified by white women and, you know, vilified and falsely claimed, then when it comes to then putting that same onus on black men, we want to protect them more because we've already been hurt. You know what I mean? Like, we've already been hurt. We've seen them be hurt. So it's kind of like a trickle-down slavery mentality. And I was reading that chapter, and I, I tweeted it, and I was just like, this all sounds fine, and I completely understand, like, the history of, like, why she would say something like that. But at that point, what Bill Cosby had been giving people quaaludes for 20 years by by then Mm -hmm. and it's kind of like how do you then and we sort of touched on this just now but how how do you have black men be accountable for their actions without it being the lynching of a black man um some of this is what i'm like we talked a little bit about this before what i'm covering for broadly in regards to this subject because i think like the sort of looming cloud is like the prison industrial system and not wanting to be really as black women to, you know, put our men in a position to have to deal with the legal system to the detriment of our safety, our sanity, emotional well-being, all that. Again, I think it's about turning the lens from men to what is protecting them do for us? Mm-hmm. How is that hurting us? And it's killing us. It's walking around with trauma. It's passing down generational trauma. It's unsafe and it's unhealthy. And I think there's a balance. You know what I mean? Like when I, we were at the event about this, um, this second screening, I should say, Dream Hampton spoke a little bit about this, about how, you know, there was a time when black men were falsely accused and they were lynched, you know. And so we still, you know, even though this is like historical trauma and we most of us in this generation have not seen a live lynching, thank God, we still have that in our minds. Like we don't want to put our men in a position of danger. But that's not the same. You know, when you're talking about somebody like R. Kelly, who literally has allegedly legal and some other sort of protections within the city of Chicago and throughout the country where he walks around unscathed. You know what I mean? He's never been prosecuted. Every case he's won or he's had a non-disclosure agreement that closed the case, like you said, with millions of dollars. This is not the same as somebody who's in Birmingham, Alabama in 1908, who's got no sort of system or anything on his side. Like, we have to stop (laughs) trying to save people who don't need to be saved and start saving ourselves. And I think, like, again, I, I really hope that this conversation shifts the focus from protecting black men to protecting black women. 
I think as a community, like you were saying, we need to protect black women. And I think that we really need to, our community needs to take ownership of the fact that black women have been like the sacrificial lamb for so long, so long. long. And I think now we all need to just step up and start having these conversations more and talk about how to implement these strategies in the next generation, how to talk about rape culture, how to talk about mental illness and how to talk about all of the pain that's been caused. When you look at R. Kelly's past, he was the victim of sexual assault. And had there been some type of open dialogue, had it been okay to talk about sexual assault in his generation, in our community, this could have been squashed because he would have gotten the help that he needed. So I just think as a community, we need to be more open and have these dialogues and know that getting help and talking about these things is okay. I also wanted to just pick off something there, too, because um, Bradley wrote something about this last year. And this is not what you're saying at all. But I know there's a lot of people who think, oh, well, he was abused. So that's why he abused. And I think it's I want to say it's like 20 or less than 20 percent of people who are sexually assaulted as kids sexually assault others. So. This free pass, I'm telling you, this free pass that this man has been getting Mm. for his alleged behavior is not okay. I'm over here livid. You know what I mean? Like livid that he systematically chooses black girls to attack because he knows they don't have the wherewithal, the money, the power, the time to fight him. And then you've got this compounded thing of this sexual assault, which I guess we all feel bad about anybody who, who deals with it, but it doesn't pacify your actions you know he came from a single home he was raised in the projects very you know not ideal childhood but it doesn't make up for your, your accountability at the end it's of the day not a singular instance either so. exactly oh. yeah i i agree i think just as a community we need to take accountability point blank period and we can't just keep on being like oh well It happened. End of story. Another way of bringing a black man down. No. The thing where I'm going to stop you there, though, is the thing is that it then becomes the onus on the black woman to then be like, oh, well, let me talk you through it. Like I was having a conversation. I was at a festival and um, it was two black guys. One was older. One was around my age. And they were like, you know, what, what they're doing to Bill Cosby is a tragedy. Nate Parker didn't deserve this. And I was just like, you know, after a while, I just shut down because it was just like there's nothing that I can say to you because it's like men have to have this conversation with men for sure you know and it's like the whole thing that you were just talking about about like let's start having conversations about what sexual assault is whether that is at the hands of a man or a woman like that also goes down to like toxic masculinity so like men just need to have a conversation touching back to what Danny said about consent touching back to like a lot of things that's not the onus the onus is not on us to be survivor and healer you know what I mean right Yeah, it's really hard. I personally find one of the hardest things about challenging environments that are really unequal um, in terms of like gender power dynamics to be in the family and at home because I do come from a really patriarchal family and it is a really stark contrast from every other sphere of my super queer femme life. (laughs) And it's the only environment that I really don't feel comfortable like telling people 
that they should act differently. And the men in my family generally are not questioned for just casual decisions that they make and like don't really explain them, even though it might affect other people. And I think that that is another area where women probably will have to like start speaking up because it is something that they're more aware of with the whiplash of their day-to-day life and then going back to other situations where it's just like completely different and difficult but overall in terms of like public discourse and people especially figuring out their relationship to public figures um, men totally have the responsibility Mm -hmm. Um, the ball is in their court I would say that we are now pivoting the conversation to what can we do we're blue in the face at this point with R. Kelly. So what's the next step to make it better for the next generation of girls? I keep talking about consent because I think that they're in our community. There's like a, a huge misunderstanding about like what consent is in my past job. We had a lot of like black women who would comment about pieces with R. Kelly and they would always be very favorable to him. And the one thing that they would always say is, well, these girls asked for it. They sought him out. So if you're under 18 in most states, you cannot consent. Right. So this discussion of like, oh, she's fast and oh, she wanted it or oh, she sought him out. Legally, it cannot happen. In certain states, like where his home is in Atlanta, I believe the legal age is like 16 of consent. And that goes back to, again, like what I'm saying, why I'm so livid with his alleged activities. It's like he, he's very well aware of the laws. We need to be very well aware of our laws, our, our, our laws or our rights as well. And we need to change this concept of what it means to have a voice and who's being given the mic. I feel really good about how Janelle Monet has reclaimed last year with her album Dirty Computer um, this Americanness and while she was being very black, very queer, very feminist, and like sort of staking her claim on the soul of this country, that was really inspiring to me. I also think Naima Ramos Chapman is a rising voice and filmmaker who's based in New York, and she's been really interesting in some of the interviews I've done with her when I've talked to her about how she wants to depict like sexual assault because she basically just is really critical of the way that survivors are depicted on movies and and TV and she feels as though scenes where people are hysterical and crying um, are sort of contributing to this idea that you should be that way when she doesn't really feel like the survivors she's talked to act that way when she talks to them and just sort of with her general life observations has created really amazing projects and I think we are seeing people starting to own their voice more and get that out there in these like really visceral ways. So black women are now using the fact that there is more awareness of them being at the bottom of the totem pole to make their stories like way more and splash more and grab more attention from people who haven't been listening to it and at a time when they really have all of this to look back on and digest and they're like such great people to be doing that work so I feel really great about some of those people that are pushing this moment so while I was talking to Dream she was basically asked her like what 
what did she want her result to be once people saw this this docuseries? And she basically said she wants to see like a social death for R. Kelly where you just don't engage with him, right? Like you don't listen to the music. He's essentially not here. And she brought up a good point about the backlash toward work from black women like The Color Purple or For Color Girls who consider suicide when the rainbow isn't enough. And just the backlash and the social death that they've kind of experienced by just trying to highlight that kind of assault within our community. And I mean, we obviously all work here at Vice, so we're storytellers and like keepers of the culture also. And in the documentary, there was like a huge montage of like all the magazine covers he's ever graced. And most of them were like black press. There were a lot of vibe covers. There were a lot of source covers, a lot of jet covers. So what do you feel like your responsibility is as a as a black journalist in this climate? Personally, I think in my life, I've already stopped listening to R. Kelly's music, right? And I think just spreading that word of like, we need to stop, point blank period. There's no Chocolate Factory was an amazing album, so I'm going to play it at family reunions anyway. We all listen to Ignition. No, no more excuses. That just needs to be done. And I think professionally, this needs to be something that is talked about regularly. This man, after we talk about this issue, he's done. He's over with like we've done with Bill Cosby, like we've done with Harvey Weinstein. It's a report on the issue. Do not support him. End of story. And and in terms of being in media, I think it's important, like Janae said, to report on it because we have to remember that he's able to fund all these homes and rentals and legal fees and million dollar payouts because he's supported by fans. He's not like, you know, from a wealthy family, like he's making money doing shows. I don't remember the last time he put out a full album. I know he's dropped like, so I think he put out an album maybe last year. Yeah. Or like maybe sort of recently, but he's not making money from album sales. They're from touring and concerts. So I would hope that the more we talk about this, the more that it leans towards anti that, the money starts to fade too because it funds all this. You have to remember when you stream, when you buy, when you buy a ticket, when you buy an album, it goes in his pocket and it funds this lifestyle and it funds this continued effort to protect something that he apparently holds so dear to him in allegedly, you know, seeking out young women. So I, yeah, I agree. We need to keep reporting on it and we need to keep having these conversations and we need to keep maybe talking to people that we know in our lives that are fans and saying, Hey, watch this, read this. Maybe you'll feel less inclined next time you, you know, hear him on the radio or next time you he drops a song to buy it. And, you know, I think we'll get there. I was really, really endeared last year when Tom Joyner decided to not play him anymore, to play R. Kelly anymore on his um, radio show after playing him for years, you know. And I, I haven't listened to Car- R. Kelly since I was in high school, which is a long time. I'm dating myself, but 2005. So I haven't listened to him in years since the sex tape. And at any time I listened to um, Tom Joyner, I would cut it off. So the fact that I don't have to do that anymore is like lovely. So I think if radio stations, if more, you know, if, if again, if it leans towards anti we, you know, we might be in a better place. Yeah, I think it's also important to note, like, yeah, if we were to sit here and pick apart every artist who did something problematic, we would literally be here all day. Like, we wouldn't have Michael Jackson. We wouldn't have a lot of people, you know? But, like, I think it's very important to note that R. Kelly's music is inherently sexual. These allegations are sexual allegations. There is no separating the two because the art imitates 
what he's accused of. I've, I've had so many conversations. I heard of people having so many conversations. A friend said last night, this conversation about artistry versus like accountability and like just because a person did something bad, should we not listen to them? This is somebody who overwhelmingly has accusations leaning towards them, has had several, over dozens, a dozen cases where he's had non-disclosure agreements settled. So you are literally funding a lifestyle that he's choosing to have. And standing up for this or standing up against this, I think you're standing up for Black women. That's it for today. Thanks so much for listening. And tune in again on Wednesday for another Vice Guide to Right Now. <laughs>